So hello and welcome to another episode of Interviews with Experts. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. Today, my guest is Corey Stevens. Corey recently completed his master's degree in entomology at the University of Nebraska. He's the owner of Stevens Bee Company, and he resides on a 27-acre farm in southeastern Missouri. In 2013, Corey became an EAS Master Beekeeper during his fifth year of beekeeping. Since then, Corey has become a well-known queen breeder here in the United States. Here's Corey. I am Corey Stevens. I reside in southeast Missouri. So if you know where Bloomfield is, and I would say most of your viewers have no idea, <laughs> it's a pretty small town in Stoddard County, and I live five miles west of Bloomfield. And it's a town of less than 2,000 people, so it's a, it's a pretty rural area. I live off a dirt or gravel road. Uh, we've got a little bit less than 30 acres out here, and this is where I do my bee stuff. My day job, I work remote. So. And so what's the day job that you work remote at? My day job, I'm a senior transportation rep for Nestle Purina Pet Care. And uh, it's a corporate gig that luckily I get to work remote as of March of 20. I know a lot of people from COVID got sent to work from their homes. I did the same. And uh, I'm a full-time bee breeder, (laughs) part-time. Okay. Well, thank you for being here, Corey. And I really appreciate that you accepted my invitation for this interview because I think there's a lot that uh, I want to know about you, and we're just going to invite other people to sit in and watch. Of course, it's not live, so nobody can interrupt us. And uh, I think it's really great. You have an interesting background. You've come from my home state, which is the state of Missouri. I was actually born in the northwest corner in Maryville, Missouri, but I graduated from Kirkwood High School north of you. And you're in a neck of the woods that when I was in high school... We used to get on our motorcycles and head out to explore new areas, and we left your area pretty darn quick. They, really? <laughs> they, they were not warming up to us one bit. So, yeah. and I don't know if it's like that anymore. I mean, I'm talking a long time ago, but it was. I don't think it is, but I don't ride a bicycle on the road down here like we would around Cape, you know. But I don't know. It's yeah. pretty rural. I would say people are pretty approachable. You know, I don't really yeah. feel the place, or maybe okay. Just- Ran into the right. wrong crowd. When I say bikes, I'm talking road iron. I'm talking motorcycles. Yeah. We were we were obnoxious. I'm not going to lie. Anyway, moving right along. So um, now I've run into you just a couple of times at the conference. I think last time I saw you, you were sitting outside because you had to go pick up Richard Knoll. Is that what was going on? It was Ian Stepler. I was oh, around. it was Ian. Okay. Ah, I knew it was somebody that was coming in from out of town. Yeah, it was good. I'm glad I got to catch up with him. And I told him I, I would pick him up. And he kept saying, well, my flight will be here. It's, you know, was saying approximately what time it ended up being around 2 a.m. And yeah. so I said, oh, I holy you, cow. But I told you I'd pick you up. I'll pick you up. So it was actually an awesome ride back. Ian even commented of what great conver- conversation it was. I enjoyed it. I didn't know it left that much of an impact on him till afterwards but it was good did you volunteer to do that or did cayman or somebody tell you that ask you if you would asked he actually asked me earlier if i would speak then he came back and said uh corey i've got too many speakers and i think maybe that was a consolation prize i don't know (laughs) oh that's too bad that's okay I, i was happy to have the opportunity i'd spoke with ian similar to what we're doing here yeah, um, just an interview, and so I've got to know him a little bit. He's a, from a rural area, you know. I say farm kid. Obviously, he's not a kid, but you can yeah. tell he was raised on a farm, and we hit it off pretty good. So, it, yeah, it was a good thing. I'm glad I got to do it. It was a good experience. And you've got some acreage around you there where you are. So, are you out? You're on a dirt road, you said. So, um. What's it like? Are there family farms around you or what do you see when you look at your neighbors? Yeah, if I look straight out the window that I'm looking at now, it's uh, across the dirt road. There's a 40 acre cattle pasture there. My neighbor, Steve, um, it's a mixture of woods. I'm less than a half a mile south of about 2000 acres of state wildlife area. And and if if you go back south, it's row crop. You know, it kind of flattens out a little bit, but we're on Crowley's Ridge. So where I'm at, it's kind of hilly, mm-hmm. you know, rolling hills, you might say. 
Okay. So there's nothing better than country. Now, do your kids go to a local high school? Yeah, they go to Bloomfield. And so how many how many kids are in the graduating class at that high school? Good question. I'm not certain with my kids currently. But you're pretty sure you're pretty sure your kids are going to graduate, right? Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) So far, things are looking good. I know south of here, Dexter, it's about 8,000 people, and my graduating class was like 170. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, this is about a, a fourth of the size, so I just yeah. depends on the class. Okay, that's cool. So I want some people that are listening here to get to know a little bit more about you. So I think a lot of people know, we know that you're breeding queens and that uh, you're a frequently referenced expert in treatment-free. Is that right? Yeah, and... uh You know, some people I know will kind of bristle up whenever people say that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would say I don't treat because I'm focused on breeding for mite and disease resistance, and I can really see what's going on if I'm treating them. You know, I don't know if I'd advocate it as a management style, but if you do it correctly, I think it can be done. But, yeah, you know, I don't want to be known for leading the kids astray. Okay. So let's go back to 2013, because this is interesting to me, because I don't think you're the kind of person that you don't wear titles on your shirt. You you obviously are tied in with the university that you're sporting there. But uh, it is interesting that in 2013, you became an EAS master beekeeper. And that's not information you volunteered. I had to pry it out of you. So uh, how old were you when you did that? That's a good question. I'm 41 now. So you're probably better at math than me, Fred. What is that? Oh, don't say that. I've blown it <laughs> many times. <laughs> I'm not owning that. But um, I have to ask why, let's go back to 2013. Why was it important for you um, to get that title? I think I was a young, new-ish beekeeper. You know, I'd had bees. I think they recommended you have bees at least five years before I took it. I think I barely qualified. <clears throat> but I felt like I mentioned to you, I felt like I had something to prove. Maybe I just mm-hmm. thought it was something that was really challenging and I love challenging things. Hence mm-hmm. you know, why I did treatment free approach. Cause most people said it's not, it can't be done, you know? Okay. And so I think that's why I went for it because whenever I hear people talk about it, it was kind of held in high regard as a difficult uh, program. So that's why okay. I chose it. So did you find it difficult or was it a walk in the park? Just so easy. It was, it was pretty thorough. Okay. Um, It was at least then, I don't know how they do it now, but they had like a lab portion, you know, where you're identifying certain things. That's the only time I've ever seen American fowl brood and smelled it. Okay. Looked at the frame, actually had a frame of it there. So a lot of ID, you have to be able to speak. So you'll do a presentation to a group of master beekeepers. You know, there's a field exam, so you, you can prove that you know how to handle yep. bees. Or <laughs> so when you were looking at the fowl breed, did they make you do the rope tests and all that? Uh, from what I remember, yes. Um, yeah, because they had little sticks there. You could test it, yeah. which I guess that's kind of a clue if you knew. Yeah. What was the most valuable part of that experience? Um, I think just the challenge and the networking too. I mean, it's the same with, you know, the conference I met you at, it seems like the networking and establishing mm-hmm. relationships with people that, you know, it's, it's a network. So the dots connect later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was probably the best part, but I liked the challenge. You know, I guess it's, it's kind of hard to get a formal challenge like that. I think that's probably the its proper place. It's just a yeah. challenge. And did they have coursework as well, or was it mostly an assessment? No, that's why I think it's different than a lot of master beekeeping programs is, you know, Florida and Montana and some of those will provide instruction. Same with the University of Nebraska, the shirt I'm sporting. Mm -hmm. Um, Their programs are more educational. I think EAS is just like, do you have it or do you you not? You know, and I think that's what I was attracted to about it, just to see if I had it. Um, And it was... It was a positive experience. I actually haven't been back yet to, uh, I've just, I work nonstop. Like I usually take off work to work, which we talked about a, a life change coming up here, mm-hmm. but I think next year I'll get to go back and, uh, I'm looking forward to it. It's been okay. a while. All right. That's going to be good. Now let's go back to, you graduated from high school. We know that much. And then, uh, 
I'm just guessing you studied biology for your bachelor's? Close. I knew I wanted to be a business owner at some point because I just always liked doing my own thing, rather independent person. And so I went agribusiness. I wanted the business aspect of things, but I was from an ag community and I love biology, entomology, horticulture, things like that. So I knew it was kind of a blend of the two of those. And so that's what I ended up getting a bachelor's in. That okay. was uh, Cape Girardeau, Southeast Missouri State. Oh, I know exactly where Cape Girardeau is. Yeah. Okay. Now, did you grow up on a farm? Did you did you come from a family of farmers? Or? You might say that. My grandpa was a hobby farmer, and he would run a bulldozer and had a couple other jobs, you know, like at a grain elevator. He was always tied in with the ag community. My grandmother worked at, uh, at the USDA office up here, a- NRCS office. So big ties to agriculture and now when you say he had a grain elevator you mean that was for his own stock or was he one of those guys that leases grain elevators and had one of those big he he worked for scott county milling company and then for okay. Cargill later so they you know bulk grain buyers that were okay talking with okay. all the farmers and he's kind of like me he's he wasn't really an introverted person he would talk to anybody okay he was pretty popular there yeah, because my neighbor actually in Kirkwood, uh, he negotiated those grain elevator contracts. Cool. So he was like a he was like a broker. So yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so then uh, you go to college, but here's the thing that's interesting. So you have a master's degree in entomology. Again, a lot of people probably don't know that, and that's fairly recent. So what made you go back for that, and uh, what'd you get out of it that you were hoping to get? Oh. Well, I think the reason I went, I always said I wouldn't go back to school unless I needed it for a position I wanted or I was really interested in it. And okay. my current employer had tuition reimbursement, which was so oh, pretty nice. Good. So they paid most of it, actually. I had I had some skin in the game, which is good. But uh, yeah, I just, I wanted to do it. I was thinking about doing something different. I've been in my current role for 14 years. I'm kind of ready for a change. And so I thought I would go back to school and see if that opened any doors. And I would say, what did I learn? The the main thing that I think entomologists focus on would be like IPM, integrated pest management, which may sound familiar to a lot of beekeepers or farmers. Um, it applies to crop production, bees, you know, cattle, whatever ag venture you have going on that has pests and, and issues mm-hmm. associated with them. So I think whenever I went into that program, I had like a two-dimensional understanding of IPM. And after reading paper after paper after paper and seeing how scientists take different angles and approaches towards it, I feel like it's like three-dimensional now, if that makes sense. I just mm-hmm. had a lot. It just makes a lot more sense to me. And also where it falls short or our weaknesses associated with IPM, mm-hmm. you know, so. I would say that was the main thing. Of course, whenever I was about this tall, my mother said I should be an entomologist whenever I grew up, which is kind of funny that I ended up being one, but I've always been into bugs, wildlife. I probably should have been a wildlife biologist. That is an interesting thing for a mother to say. I don't know. (laughs) You're going to be an entomologist when you grow up and you're going to study integrated pest management. She was right. In University of Nebraska. So, um, what was your biggest surprise with that? You said that you wanted to get kind of a three-dimensional and you wanted to get off the paper and into the field probably. And so Absolutely. did you get involved in some field studies that left an impression or you saw room for improvement? Um, I didn't, not so much, uh, involved in the field in IPM, but more so, uh, you know, conceptually with papers and, and, uh, weighing different ways people look at it. Um, what was the question again, Fred? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, were there things that you could have seen uh, could have been improved? You know, it could have been done okay. better. Well, I mean, it, to me, it seems like the cornerstone of IPM is is host resistance, which mm-hmm. ties into my breeding philosophy. If mm-hmm. you don't have some type of host resistance, you're just killing pests at that point because the organism that you're managing, whether it be goats or bees or whatever, doesn't have any mechanism to be able to handle that pest on its own. You know, Varroa is what we're talking about here in our case. And uh, so I think focusing on host resistance to where you actually have an IPM program 
because mm-hmm. I think uh, oftentimes the weakness associated with it is that they just don't have any measurable host resistance, honestly. And then it's just sampling nonstop and just treating constantly whenever you need to. But if mm-hmm. you don't have that host resistance, you're always going to need to, unless environmentally, you know, the pest pressure just wasn't that bad that year. Mm-hmm. But I would say that's that's the main thing that I kept noticing over and over and over again. And it, I, I think why it gets glossed over is for a good reason. And that reason is it's the most difficult path, which probably mirrors a lot of things in life. You know, mm-hmm. the most difficult thing you could obtain oftentimes would be the best thing that you could obtain. You mm-hmm. know, something you had to had to work to earn it. And it's and it's sustainable too. So like a lot of people, we if we talk about, um, you know, miticides, like mm-hmm. um, amitraz is a really good one. It's been a great miticide for a long time. Well, now they're starting to, USDA was reporting pockets of resistance, which is a horrible news um, because then we got to figure out something else, you know, and we're constantly always having to change it up and mm-hmm. use a different mode of action is what an entomologist would say. So like oxalic acid has a different mode of action as amitraz or kumapals mm-hmm. or whatever. It's how it controls the test. So I would say to, you know, to get off that treadmill of just switching whatever chemical applications to try to stay ahead of it, you're actually focusing on rooting for host resistance. And then whenever you need it, or they're starting to get overrun for whatever reason, mm-hmm. then you can use an amidocide and if you do it that way, that's a proper balance. And then you're not at risk so much of, of resistance or if resistance pops up, it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Whereas like right now we haven't properly given post resistance and breeding enough weight, I think. And I think we've kind of got ourselves painted in the corner, so to speak, but that's not to say we're without hope. I just think we have to shift our focus more towards that and continue to get good miticides and find stuff that's better, you know, with less of a trade-off. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say we need to go that direction more. But so You mentioned uh, kumafos. Isn't that uh, something we're really trying to keep out of yeah. uh, our treatments? And that's because it builds up in the beeswax um, and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's fat-soluble and beeswax is yeah. lipid, so it just absorbs it. And this is uh, check mite is what we're talking about. A lot of you will remember it back in the day. The main two were uh, fluvalinate or apistan and checkmite, which is kumafos. And of course, both of them stick in the comb. And after it starts to build up over time, it just has negative effects on the reproduction of your queens. Your drone quality goes down, just not good. You start sawing the branch off you're standing on. You right. Know, so. so since your beekeeping experience <clears throat> goes back so far, uh, what led you down the path of deciding that you wanted to start to do your own queen breeding and controlling your own genetics? And how did you get started with that? And who who kind of uh, might have helped you along or who set a good example for you in that line? Yeah, I would say there is multiple examples. I would touch on that first. The first uh, was my local bee club. There was a, a commercial beekeeper, Neil Bergman. A lot of people all know him. Big, tall guy from Minnesota, still had a Minnesota act but he ran thousands of colonies and I kept reading every queen rearing book I could get my hands on and I kept telling him I read this and I read this and I read this and he's like put that book down and go do it and that's exactly what I needed to hear because like I had the theory but until I got my hands on it it was just all theory it was no experience mm-hmm. and so I learned a lot and that was about my third third year of beekeeping or so and then I kind of put the cart before the horse and I bought because I was obsessed over genetics who would have thought from an entomologist I started buying VSH Italian breeder queens from Tom Glenn (laughs) that was before I knew how to raise a queen which is kind of stupid you know I should have learned and then invested but I wanted to raise from good stock so let's let's pause on that for a second Sure. Uh, a lot of people listening may not know what you mean by a breeder queen, and these are different than just getting pure stock. These are breeders are pricey, right? Very, and it's because so, they're typically artificially inseminated. Okay. 
instrumentally inseminated, if you want to say that, so that they can control exactly who mom and dad is. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you're selecting for certain traits, like this is a pretty primitive example, but if we're breeding black labs for retrieving instinct, and then whenever you're your black lab females in heat and you just turn her loose in the neighborhood and hope for the best you know that's not a good way for trait selection so with bees they just open mate freely with 15 or 20 drones mm -hmm. so you have a lot of variation with that insemination you know you can you know who mom and dad are with a high degree of accuracy and mm -hmm. then you can kind of predict them a little bit better and know what drones they're going to produce so they are pricey absolutely mm -hmm. It has a huge impact on an operation. Can you give people an idea what pricey means? Oh, yeah, they vary. You know, Tom Glenn used to sell them back in the good old days for $100 or $125 a piece, which is completely insane for yeah. a laying breeder. Um, now they'll run from 250 you know, not yet laying. Occasionally you'll find them in a 300 to 400 range laying and and all the way up to a couple thousand dollars a piece, like mm. a Washington state, you know, they sell breeders in a nuke. And I think they're about 2000 or $2,500 for a nuke. Holy so, cow. And who's yeah. buying these, who's buying these breeder are these big commercial operations that have their own breeding division and stuff like that? Yeah. Oftentimes, or just obsessed hobbyists, you know, like I was, I was in the market for breeders for a while until I started doing my own thing. But I mean, there's a lot of people that with, small to commercial size operations that buy them so it just depends what mm -hmm. if what the, how much they value it and if it's worth it to them typically mm -hmm. though the purpose of breeders is to raise a large number of queens from it so you know mm -hmm. if you spend a couple thousand on one but you sell tons of queens out of it you know you get right. better stock or get stock you want and you can recoup your money too so if we were looking at prize bulls and we know that those prices go a full range What's a prize bull? What's a top of the line equivalent for queens? Like what's the most expensive breeder queen line that you can imagine somebody buying? I think it's WSU just as far as commercially available stock. There may be some, you know, that uh, not, I'm not aware of them even. I think that's kind of the top end. But if people are doing something special and it's something that market demand is behind, yeah. I think, uh, you know, I guess the market would dictate how high that could go. And it keeps yeah. changing. It's changed oh, sure. over the past couple of years. And I, I'm yeah. sure it will continue. And so right now, you don't have queens for sale. but Because uh, I looked at your website. Here's what I was going to do, Corey. I was going to head off any listeners that might be buying your stuff. And then I was going to go buy the queens I wanted. And then I was going to say, oh, yeah, get your queens from Gory if you need to. Tell them. But, that would be a good strategic maneuver. I, then I, I get there. So if you're trying to dodge away from this video right now and try to buy a queen from Corey, you can't. You're going to wait until 2024 <laughs> yeah. like the rest of us. Yep, exactly. Uh, yeah. Typically, my queen season runs um, first part of April till at least mid-June. And this year... It was a tough year where we were at. I, I heard some people say it was their best year, you know, around in various locations in the U.S., but yeah. it's probably one of the worst I've seen in a while. We did ship over 2,000 queens. You know, that's with a day job, but I'm selling virgin queens. These mm -hmm. aren't open-mated queens, so I can sprint them through them a lot faster. Mm -hmm. We shipped over 2,000, but it took us three or four weeks longer this year than what it would normally take, and that's just because the nectar flow you know typically it follows a bell curve it mm. was like this <laughs> yeah this year and when your nectar and pollen shut off you know and your bees are wanting to rob which is almost unheard of april and may where i'm at right. i saw it this year your queen production will follow that uh nutrition and you can feed i still feed it's not like i just you know let nature run its course there but you can't outfeed a nectar flow. There's just, it's just impossible right. to react to it. So when you feed, what do you feed and how? Um, I usually don't have to feed pollen because there's enough diversity around here and a lot of pollen coming in. Mm -hmm. I feed thin sugar syrup. So you'll hear a lot of beekeepers say one to one or two to one. Well, the two to one they're talking about is two sugar to one water, really right. thick. I do the opposite of that, two water to one sugar and that's it, it's actually more like natural nectar, about 33% right. sugar by volume. 
and it's extremely stimulative. So if you feed it to cell builders, uh, nucleus colonies, they just want to feed larvae and uh, they want to build cum and they want to expand. So yeah, has, did somebody, sorry to cut you off, did somebody publish about that this year, about that thinner? Yeah, I would be, if you, if they did, if you find it, if you run across it, Fred, if you don't mind sending it to yeah. me. Because you're not, you're not the first person who said that. The lighter syrup actually had a much bigger yep. representation of productivity in the hive and everything Absolutely. else. Absolutely. And it's, I mean, it, it shouldn't come as a surprise if you look at it in the spring of how they respond to nectar coming in, which is really thin like that. Um, it's just stimulative is what a lot of people say. But mm -hmm. they just respond so much differently to it. But it's the opposite of what you'd want to do in the fall when you want to just put weight on them you right. don't want to stimulate them to grow and raise a ton of brood you know so it's the opposite of that and now i know that too so in the fall when you're trying to get them to gain weight we might as well talk about that if you go to a heavy syrup are you using any formulas is it just sugar syrup what are you doing just sugar syrup and I, I'm in between. I'm really having to step up my game with feeding because we've got enough colonies now. It's really annoying to just make buckets of it. But right. I've been kind of hung in that for so long because I don't feed. I feed in the fall if needed, which and I typically do put some on them just for insurance. You know, but most of the feeding I do is cell builders, nucleus colonies, and uh, that's mainly it: cell builders and nukes. Because they're trying to build up, you know, and the nucleus colony has a small population. And that's mm -hmm. the holdup because they don't have enough workers to really bring in the nutrition they want. And if right. you supplemental feed them, they just respond so much quicker to get them to size, you know, where they're not so weak. Okay. So what's your trigger for starting feeding? And what's your, what's the end of that? How do you gauge when to stop feeding? Um, in the fall, it's mainly just opening them up and seeing how much honey they have or you know if, you, if you're on pallets or something if you could weigh it that's pretty much what it comes down to um and i i wish i had a good formula one of my friends does but he tilts all of his hives up and literally weighs them so he okay. has a really good idea of exactly what it weighs um i i hope to get better as i don't have a day job to juggle but you know time's always a factor with me sure. so it's mainly just uh you know, I guess how grandma cooks, you know, she just looks at it, tastes it, sees how it is and makes mm -hmm. a judgment call over whether they need more or not. I know that's not very specific, but yeah. I mean, after a while, you can tell if a colony is heavy and has a lot of stores or if they're lacking. Yeah. And how are your hives configured? Have you made any changes through the years that are distinctive or are you kind of just things are was... okay? A lot of 10 frame, like most of my stuff's 10 frame doubles, you know, and then I'll use excluders and then medium supers, but I use a lot of five framers. Actually, I, I think I've got more five frame uh, colonies than I do t full size 10 frame. Of course, that's starting to change because I just bought a bunch of wood since I'm expanding. Mm -hmm. But my favorite configuration to winter is to start a later nuke get them solid in a five frame, add another five frame on top of them, and they draw all that out, and they're mm -hmm. heavy. Mm -hmm. Those things winter so well. And I think my theory is, is you know, if your cluster size gets in the medium-sized or smaller mm -hmm. range, you know, they have to kind of go around frames to get to stores to go horizontally. But if yep. they're moving vertically, they just move right up the chimney. And, you know, I feed through the lid, too. It's a migratory lid with a quart-sized hole in it. So okay. even where we're at here, even in December, you know, if they're just running on fumes, you know, you can stick warm syrup on them if need be okay. to get them through. I know that's... Glad uh, I am, let me pause right there just in case people are listening uh, to that detail. Uh, cold syrup on your bees shuts them down. Uh, so I'm glad you mentioned the warm syrup when you're feeding. Because uh, I did very fundamental backyard studies on that to show uh, if your syrup was in the 50s and if your syrup was in the 70s and the bees were able to process multiple times faster with the warm syrup, the cold syrup, they took it on, but then they went into a stupor and sat there and they had to warm it. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. But the other part, too, is this thing about the, the nukes, five over five. Um, I was slow to that game. I, I always just started in an eight or 10 frame deep sure. and just let them fill it out. 
but just as you described, the five over five, and I even go to triples, um, they fill that so fast and they work home so much quicker. And there's something about that narrow column of warmth going up. And uh, so I have stacks of those out there now, just because those are my resource hives. I'm not doing anything like what you're doing, but there's something up with that narrow, tall column. And uh, what do you think the future holds for that? What do you... I feel like more people keep using it. And especially too, yeah. because, you know, you'll have younger or smaller beekeepers entering the game, you know, that are lighter bone structure and they just don't want to lift a 80 or 90 pound deep that's full of honey. I don't really even want to, you know, and those mm -hmm. five framers are so much easier on your back. And, they're and, they could, and they could all be deeps, which the yeah. bees work them better, I think, than the mediums yeah. or shallows. Yeah. I totally agree. I actually bought a bunch of nuke supers. They're little uh, medium supers, but yeah. I run excluders too because I, I don't put a, I don't put any moth crystals and stuff on my hives. And I found that if I run excluders, and I know some people don't like it because it kind of keeps them out of it for a while until they mm -hmm. can just are forced through it to draw comb. Right. Mm -hmm. But when that queen doesn't lay up there, there's no brood cocoon up there, and generally, most of the time, no pollen. And those are just, if you leave them exposed to uh, sunlight for quite some time and then put them up once it gets cold, it just seems like you don't have wax moth issues. But, man, if you've got cocoons in there or some pollen, that's the first thing they go for is those brood cocoons. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's mm -hmm. actually very helpful. Okay, so what else? As far as your configurations, any insulation on top? Nothing? No, I'm really, uh, I go against what a lot of people would probably say. Not that I think I'm correct or anything, but a lot of the stuff I run are on screens and I run open screens all winter long. Now I have a lot of colonies that are solid bottom, so I've got yeah. both. But one thing I've found, because I used to use like a, like a mountain camp method. Have you talked yeah. about that? Yeah. Like dry sugar for emergency on use. paper yeah yeah well i would find i don't really do that anymore but i found i noticed back when whenever i would use that i would open up my solid bottom colonies and that paper was wet like you could just peel it because of all the condensation but the ones that yeah. had that passive airflow through those screens it was like crunchy and dry and and so that stuck with me more than any kind of varroa advantage I just I like to have them uh, ventilated pretty well, and I mean we saw negative twenty something air temp where I'm at. Now that's not the norm, and it wasn't like that for a week. You know, it was just a day. But if bees are are healthy, they're not ate up with mites. They've got a good healthy population, a good queen, and lots of stores. Mm -hmm. It's kind of shocking what kind of low temperatures they can withstand especially if they're not in direct wind right you know? the wind so, is key just like with birds yeah. blocking the wind yep yep exactly so uh, it's not that i'm recommending people do that it's just that's just kind of where my equipment has evolved to and yeah. most stuff i buy you know a lot of it's screened typically i think i'm going to be going to pallets here before too long because i'm going full time next so year. when you go when you go to pallets you can have solid bottom boards no, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to design and build my own pallets that have, uh, it doesn't have to be the whole thing screened, but at least a good sized hole in the center of it that are screened because, you know, um, with moving them, that's what pallets are so beneficial for. Right. Um, whenever you move them, man, I mean, if you don't have good ventilation, have you ever cooked any of these? Like I've killed nukes on accident. I have I never. I can, I can at least say that I've never cooked a bee. I'll confess. But, I've but I don't move bees around. You, you have to consider I'm not a commercial guy. I'm a backyard guy. Well, mine was yeah. mainly where I, where I learned that is I would take nukes to people. Like if I was doing a clean rearing course in St. Louis or Columbia or something in Missouri, I would take nukes with me. I mean, and I don't like little skinny nukes. These were completely packed with bees. Mm -hmm. And I had a couple of them that, that just baked themselves because they would try to go in that little screened hole and plug it. And there's just mm -hmm. so much heat from those bees that 
you know, you'd get in there and there'd just be a pile of dead bees in the bottom. I, I think I learn best if I really screw something up to where it burns and hurts a little bit. And mm. so I don't do that anymore. And maybe I'm overcompensating, but whenever I move bees, man, I just, I have, I'm a lot more at ease if they're on a screen bottom where they can at least get some airflow through there because, you know, if you've got big old colonies like that, if it's in the mid eighties or nineties where yeah. we're at, it can be dangerous to plug them up or, you know, confine them for any length of time. So I know somebody's sitting there wondering, so if the screens are open on the bottom, are they vented? Is there a vent at the top somewhere or is the top sealed? Top sealed. It's just okay. migratory covers for the most part. Okay. <clears throat> Although, you know, sometimes I've got, I use hive top, the man like the new hive top feeders. Have you ever used those before? Mm -hmm. Man, they're great for cell builders because I, I take off every Monday, April, May, and June for my day job. So I graft every Monday, you know, 100 to 500 queens. And then every, the following weekend, they all emerge and I ship on Monday. So, okay. you know, that's why I was saying I take off work to work. Well, those hive top feeders, if I graft, I can put two or four gallons in there. And if I'm busy later, I'm not so worried about coming back and keeping that cell builder mm -hmm. fed because I can just put so much on them. And describe so, the hive top feeder that you're using. Yeah, it almost looks like a. it's a little bit uh, – the height isn't as much as a, as a shallow super is what I was trying to say. Mm -hmm. So it's about, you know, about like yay. And it's got a liner on the inside of it, which mm -hmm. the old ones, their bee space was so jacked up. They would have comb and everything all through, mm -hmm. and it was kind of a mess. But I stuck with them because I could put so much syrup on those builders. Well, they fixed the bee space a lot. And so I don't even run an inner cover now. I just leave those feeders on year-round. Okay. So I don't have to pull them on. So is there? So there's like a plenum that they go up and over to feed on that? Yeah, it's right down there. That's Yep, and it used to be like the center of it was this wide. Now it's like more like B space. So they yeah. don't. It's beautiful. And if yeah. I get a solid bottom board, some of them you'll have so much condensation from those bees respiring. It's just like if you have a cold pan of glass and you blow on it, you know, you'll see. Sure. Yeah. Down. Well, if yeah. I open those up, sometimes those feeders will have a pond of water in them, especially on a solid bottom. And I'll just prop the telescoping lid on those tin frames up and put a brick on it and you'll come yeah. back later and it's dry so it just allows that airflow you know and that's another thing you could do if you had solids is just allow a top as you know vapor escape basically mm -hmm. i'm sure there's a lot of different ways you could do that some people and then what kind of entrances are on these hives i'm um, just a standard entrance and i entrance use uh, like stainless steel mouse guards Okay. The mice here, I don't know if it's from the fields or what, but they can be wicked around what here. Kind, so what well. kind of mice do you have? Are we talking kangaroo um, mice, kangaroo rats? No, I mean, deer I mice. Should, uh, yeah, we've got deer mice. We've got voles. You know, it seems like it's usually mice that I find that are up in there, but um, I don't know. A lot of people just say field mice, but I think it is technically a deer mouse, isn't it? Deer mouse. Yeah. That you called it? Yeah, they have a white stomach and a deer-colored back. Yeah, Those are my right. fastest movers. Yeah, yeah, they so, can and, they can almost chew through a man-like top bar. That's impressive. So one time I didn't put mouse guards on. I had brand new man-like hive top feeders I put on, and I fed this colony about two gallons. And I was feeding the ones next to it, and I looked out back, and there's just syrup shooting out the front. One of those mice had got up in there and shoot a circle out of my reservoir. So now I don't play games. There's there's mouse guards on all my tin frames and mm -hmm. all my five frames. They don't nobody makes a mouse guard for that, do they? Have you ever seen them? I had to have them fabbed. Make a mouse guard for what? For five frame equipment. Somebody should Well, here's what I do. Okay. Uh, I have found out that they can't get through a three eighths inch opening. So this year, all of my entrances are only three-eighths of an inch high. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, if you've got a mouse that's got lots of time on its hands, it's going to chew away until it gets in there throughout the winter. So now, just like you don't like to chew on a piece of aluminum foil, uh, mice don't like to chew on anything metal. So even a thin strip of copper 
around that. At that height, just the top bar part because the bottom they don't chew too much. Yeah, uh, that stops them right there. So that's what's going on all my hives this uh, this winter. I spent a lot of time, Corey, staring at mice, and I have cameras out there. My cameras have cameras. <laughs> I decided not. You want to know a funny just for kicks? Um, I like skunks. Okay, I don't hate them. I want them around. They dig out yellow jackets and stuff. Oh, true. They eat a lot of things, but I had a recent superstar that could jump and slap a landing board that was eighteen inches high. So. Uh, I also have noisemakers that I'm testing because those will keep things away. Those work really well. But I wanted to entertain myself a little bit, so I added more cameras to this particular hive because the skunk was fixated. Yeah. The bees can't see the skunk. So when he scratches it, they come out at night. They're all down the legs. They're on the ground, and he's rolling them, and he's eating them, right? Yeah. I'm gonna, here's So I decided I'm going to get – it's not that I want to get any YouTube views, but um, – I figured it would be YouTube gold if, what if we lit the skunk up so the bees could see it, then they could get it. With a lot? Yeah. So I set up these Arlo Pro 4s, whatever they are. They've got spotlights built into them, all motion activated. And the skunk just walked away. Like, as soon as the <laughs> lights all came on, rather than holding his ground and taking his stings like he's supposed to, so exactly. people can be entertained, he <laughs> left. <laughs> So, but at least we have a new tool that uh, I thought the bees might be distracted by a white light that comes on like that and they would go at it. Um, but they only stay on for 40 seconds or whatever and, and then the skunk leaves. So I saw my skunk problem, but I did not get the attack that I was hoping to see that uh, okay. the bees yeah, did not get their vengeance. But I like uh, the concept though. I would have thought they would have got after it, especially being a little black fuzzy thing like that scratching on the entrance man oh you haven't you i've got skunk skunks have fed on beehives for hours at a time just wow. and you didn't you've that. never seen it no just because i don't have any game cams or anything out there that's the thing yeah. but i'm sure well, we've got plenty of skunks around here what are you doing in january sitting inside probably oh you're not going anywhere Oh, yeah, I actually will be. <laughs> <laughs> you just gave Cayman a heart attack right there. He's like, what? He's sitting inside. He's not going. Because <laughs> that's where that's where I'm going to reveal a lot of these sequences. A lot of these videos and stuff are going to be at uh, at that conference because be I have to have something new. And Oh, yeah, absolutely. has to be a little sensational while being educational. So. True. That'll be a perfect fit. So what is, so these, um, when you say the mice are really doing a number on your hives, what are you noticing when they get inside? What's the damage? Uh, just comb damage. You know how valuable combs are, especially if yes. it seems like they're not going to kill a colony, but it seems like some of them that uh, I think they demoralize some. Um, whenever they're really tight and it's really cold, they'll just destroy the comb. Yeah. You know, try to make a nest in there and put debris in it. And they urinate and they defecate and they exactly. they just stink up the hive. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I just, I just, I like to put mouse guards on. It was kind of an expense, but the five framers, I had them cut to, you know, fit a five frame. And then you've got like a, a little bit of waste over here. It's not wide enough for another one. Well, my buddy just spot welded squares of steel on there to make okay. the width as the others. That way I didn't waste them. And so now I've got them on all my five framers too. So, ha ha. There you go. That'll teach them. So do you have any, oh, you don't have video cameras of the mice being frustrated? No, I need to. That would be good content. Okay. All right. So uh, let's get on with the, how did you decide what traits you wanted from your bees? And uh, you are, you're avoiding treatments, right? Mm -hmm. So does that mean you're culling those that aren't performing? Yes. How do you handle those that don't meet the standard that you're setting for them? Yeah, that's my, my goal. Whenever I started, I knew <clears throat> that I wanted to breed something that was mite resistant. And I mean, they had publications out at that time that said, here's exactly some of the stuff we're aware of already. And mm -hmm. of course, there's more we don't know about. But I'm like, well, that's pretty straightforward. If I just get that in my bees, they've got a fighting chance. You know, so that's why I, I abandoned treatments, I guess, just because I was selecting for certain traits, which 
The one I got hung up on was VSH, Varroa Sensitive Hygiene, if right. people have heard of it. But I think it was the, the one that I got hung up on the most. I'm glad I did because I feel like it's multifaceted as well. Um, you know, they used to call it SMR or suppressed mite reproduction. I couldn't figure out what was going on at the USDA B lab, only that they were somehow keeping the mite reproduction down where normal colonies, it was just a free for all. Mm -hmm. And so they figured out later it was a hygienic mechanism. So the bees were detecting it, uncapping them and mm -hmm. throwing out the reproductive mites for some reason. But mm -hmm. I think there, there's overlap. Like we did testing with Kara, Kara Wagner with UBO and that's a type of hygiene and there's massive overlap between that and VSH. The one thing, the reason I knew there would be is because they target not just reproductive, but I think it, if that brood's stressed, you know, they have a lot of mites on them. They, they emit an unhealthy brood odor or a stress pheromone. Mm -hmm. And the, the, bee, the worker bees will target that and throw them outside. Well, it, they also keep lower viral loads because mm -hmm. of those pupa, not just with mites on them, but if they're just sick, you know, and puny, or they've got a lot of virus, mm -hmm. um, they'll do the same thing, emit that stress pheromone, and then the bees mm -hmm. throw it outside. So if you test it, um, you know, even without miticides, and I haven't used miticides in uh, at least 10 years or better, mm -hmm. I don't see withered wings like I used to see, you know, parasitic mite syndrome. Have you seen that, Fred? Like where it Yeah, deformed like, wing virus. Yeah, they just look yeah. like the wings are little pieces of yarn. It's terrible but actually you won't see that in those colonies, even if they get a bit of a mite load, because it's not like they're mite proof for a, you know, it's just a, uh, it's an advantage. It's not like, you know, they'll never get mites. That's not realistic. They just seem right. to handle Yeah, them. we almost need, we need those that can live in the presence of mites almost. Because they're all, they're all around. I don't think there's any yeah. good of them. So what do you know about, uh, you mentioned that they'll, they'll, that pheromone will release, you have a stressed pupa in there, and uh, sometimes they'll just uncap it, yep. and this will desiccate the mites or something, and then they'll, they don't necessarily always pull them out, they just uncap them, expose them for a while, and then the bee continues to develop. Can you explain more about that, or do you know about that? I know there's a paper that came out of Cuba that had to do with uncap. But I, I almost think that it's like, that's a, this is just me speaking out of theory here. This mm -hmm. is experience or something mm -hmm. I've read per se. But I think that whenever they have that uncap gene, if they uncap it early and they're not overrun, um, the other genes that are tied with that, because they say VSH is a trait set, it's not just a gene, it's like a set of traits. I think that uncap is important, but oftentimes, because I see a lot of uncap here in my apiary, most of the time they will pull them out, but not always. And I would speculate, like you mentioned, that just opening it up and agitating it just would mm -hmm. probably throw them off. Or you know, I don't know exactly what effect it's having on them. I know the physical removal has a massive impact on yeah. them. Mm -hmm. So the ones that are just uncapping, I would say. Uh, you know, they may not have that complete VSH trait set. But it was weird, too, because we were seeing some, I guess you would call it survivor stock or my stock, Missouri mite hunters. Whenever we were UBO testing, there were some that were uncapping, but they weren't high UBO scorers, which I hmm. wouldn't have guessed. I thought it was like, like a precursor. Hmm. Because like if you look at the old USDA stuff, there I think there's still one that Jeff Harris or somebody had written from the USDA B lab that's still on the internet. And they said uncapping was like a first open sign of VSH. Now, just because they're uncapping doesn't mean that they're VSH. That's why I think, you know, it's part of that gene set. So, mm -hmm. you know, and it could have an effect all its own, all by its all by itself. Was there something that you had read about the uncap? Oh, no, just that it, because uh, the mites in their early development, because after they, you know, they're juvenile mites and they're in there, they're very sensitive to changes in the environment that they're in. And so the uncapping uh, took away so much humidity from them that they just kind of died in place. And so that all that was left would be, of course, the foundress mite. 
Uh, and she was durable, of course, and could later survive, but it, it stopped reproduction. That's all. That makes sense. So, I mean, whenever we're <clears throat> measuring VSH, we're pulling all these pupae out and looking in there and sure. looking for, we tally up, like you mentioned, just the foundress mite, like she mm -hmm. didn't reproduce for whatever, for whatever reason. We tally those and then mm -hmm. we tally the ones that are reproductive. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the juvenile juveniles or the duda nymphs, they're not mm -hmm. even hardened yet. You know, right. it's like pull out mom, she's or, you know, reddish brown and right. like has a hard exoskeleton. Well, these juveniles, they almost look like you could almost see through them. They're kind of trying to Yeah. fragile. Yeah. So that, that well, not just that, they can't even, they need the mother to cut into that pupa so that they can feed on the wound. They can't even bite on their own. That's how delicate they are. So, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So yeah, yeah I think that uncap is pretty neat. I've seen some uncap. <clears throat> it's almost like like they weren't hygienic enough and they're starting to get overrun, you know? So it seems like it's either good or it's or it's bad because they don't have a low threshold. They have a high threshold for starting to uncap. And yeah. so sometimes you'll see uncap on a colony that's probably walking dead because their mount load's gotten out of hand. Right. So, so you've, you've been doing this for 10 years. How do you gauge your progress? Um, you know, it's like anything. Um, I think your trajectory, you aim this way, but it's kind of like this mm -hmm. moving towards it. You know, there for a while, I didn't know how to measure it myself. So I just kept buying like anything VSH breeder, I would buy it and just mix it into my pool, you know, mm -hmm. and then I, I became a member of John Harbo. That's the guy who found VSH. He's a retired bee scientist. Mm -hmm. He had a breeding group. So he was retired. I think he was trying to pass the torch to the next generation you know, and got people together that wanted to select for it and said, here's how you measure it. And you can go mm -hmm. to, if you Google Harbo Bee Company, and there's like a, a VSH or measure VSH, if you go to the tabs and it'll detail out everything, like what's age pupa to look for, how many you need to uncap, how to score it whenever you tally it. Right. You know, so it's, it's pretty cool. And I think after I was able to measure it, I had confidence like, oh, well, the stuff I have, a lot of it's better than what I was buying. So why would I keep doing that? But I didn't know. I was ignorant. I didn't know how to measure it. I just felt like I needed to keep bringing it in, if that makes sense. And so when you're talking about the measuring practice, is that where like the liquid nitrogen circle and then putting it back in? That's that's freeze kill brood or FKB. Right, right, yeah. What that does, it's slightly different than a VSH test because, and it's different than a UBO test too, like Kara has. So UBO is unhealthy brood odor. Well, hygiene, they're dead. So they're actually, the smell that they put off, I think Kara, don't quote me on this, I thought she said oleic acid or something like that. It's totally different than unhealthy brood. So if you read a lot of the liter literature on freeze-killed brood, it says it may or may not equal mite resistance. But, exactly, like they, it, it wasn't a good measurement for mite right. resistance. But they, would, they were good about removing dead brood or if there was brood issues. Right. But UBO, I think, is hypersensitive. You know, if they score high on a UBO, they're not just smelling dead brood, just even sick or something's off a little bit, they uncap them. So it's it's vastly different. And like if you're measuring VSH, that's where you're, it's really boring. You got to psych your friends up or buy them a drink or something when they come over because yeah. you're uncapping pupa. It can be monotonous. If you got to have a good lively crowd that keeps things interesting while you're doing this. Yeah. That's the approach yeah. I've taken anyway. Oh yeah, what kind of, so you're not doing insemination. I do, yes. Oh, I've, you do? Yep, I do that after I've collected my data. So, like, I run them untreated. I let Mother Nature take her gloves off and punch them around a little bit. I pick my favorites that come out of winter and are vigorous. I can tell they're going to be productive. They want to be a big colony and take off. And yeah. the last hurdle is a VSH test. And then okay. I'll use that to pick um, the drone-producing colonies. So they're like an F1 daughter, typically. But if they score really high, I'll catch all the boys out of those. 
and then I'll graft out of my breeder queens I made the year before and then repeat the process. Okay, so when you're doing your, so you've got a, a drone yard and you've got a queen finishing yard and all of that. Yep. Are you isolated enough from other influences that you know you're getting your own stock? I'm pretty isolated. Whenever I came out here and looked at this property, there were some kind of black, mostly black feral bees around here. So there's a few bees around whenever I showed up, but I've been here for so long now. I'll catch swarms around here, and a lot of the swarms I catch test high for VSH, <clears throat> which makes sense because I'm doing nothing but just shooting, sure. flooding the whole area, which is pretty isolated. I, I hope it stays that way. I mean, if people move in, I want to get some good breeding. They're going to find out this is really a pretty wretched honey production area, so maybe yeah. that'll help me out. But if you drop off, you know, off the ridge to where there's irrigated crops, it seems like. There's better honey production that way. Or if you go up north to where there's more limestone mm -hmm. up towards Cape, you know, it seems like their production's higher up there as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty isolated. And then I, yeah. I use, you know, even if somebody moved up close to me, that's why I use instrumental insemination too. You know, that way I can control it to at least a high degree. And did you see that uh, last year at Hive Life? Did you see that uh, artificial in insemination system that was there by apis engineering i have i've never What'd you think of that it looks awesome uh, they're gaining popularity there's a lot of people i know that use them and really like them i think the, the advantage to those is it's kind of an all-in-one setup yeah you've got your base you've got your instrumentation you've got your gas and your optics mount to it you know yeah. the little micro gas system so that's super yeah. cool i was raised on a schley I learned from Sue Kobe. I think it was 2014. It was like the year after I went to EAS. And that's kind of, I guess, uh, I don't know. A lot of people that do inseminations would probably say that's top end. You know, so as far as cars, it's a high end car. Um, all mm. of them will get the job done, even the really simple ones, if you know what you're doing. Sure. But I feel like the adjustability and the precision on those schlays is high. But of course, you know, they're a couple thousand bucks just for the instrument. So sure. And he had a digital microscope. Yeah. There too. Yeah, Did you ever well. use that? Yeah, I've got a couple of them. Um, they call them Trinox. So you talk about a camp, the one with the camera on it. Yeah, so, it's got a camera on it. And I noticed the one he had demonstrated there was like a 12 megapixel image, which I yeah. thought was really lame. And yeah. then, uh, but then I looked up that company that made that camera and they have the same. It'll fit in the same jig and everything, but it'll go to 46 Ooh, okay. megapixels. So it's, if you were doing a teaching tool or something, you wanted that on a big screen while you're doing what you're doing, yes. I could see that. Or if you're recording what you're doing for training purposes and stuff, I could see that being very okay. valuable. But there's yeah. a, you know, having your hand move over here while you look at the screen up here. Yeah. That's a little that's a little training curve there, right? Yeah. I actually used one last weekend. I taught a, a an instrumental insemination course for Penn State, their EPIC program. With that's where you were with uh, Dr. Robin Underwood. And we had a tri-knock there. So a tri-knock is, as you can look and be working, and there's a camera looking and seeing what you're right. seeing. And they can put it up on the – and that was a 4K tri-knock. Yeah. So you can get them with a lot higher resolution, but the one you saw that's super lame is probably like the one that's right behind me. I bought it in 2014. The optics are magnificent. Like they work great, but. But the digital. Pretty part. Lame. Yeah. yeah, but I'll never use it because it's just me up here by myself in Southeast Missouri doing inseminations, you know, on a Sunday afternoon or Monday afternoon. Yeah. So, so tell me more about what you were doing at Penn State. What was that? Well, they 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 call it Epic E P I Q the Epic program. So they took everybody through queen rearing, through stock selection, and like the select few out of that got to be outfitted with schlays, the ones I was the high end insemination equipment, and trained on it. So okay. I was super honored. The lady I learned from Sue Kobe, a lot of people recognize the name. She's a total rock star. I learned from her in 2014. She thought, taught the first class that was a month or so ago, and then I taught the second group of people, which uh, that was just too cool for me because it, I, I feel like I'm taking up 
the slack, you know, Sue's getting closer to retirement. I think Tim retired her husband, got an awesome boat, you know, so I don't blame her. I'd be wanting to spend some time on the water. Oh, too. so they, they got like a three person rowboat or something? <laughs> probably not. Probably way more cool than that. A she party barge? A party <laughs> Maybe it might be a party barge. Have you been to Whidbey Island up there off the coast of Seattle? That's where she I don't. Corey, I don't get out of my yard. I'm, you why do you think we're Zooming? <laughs> no need to leave Pennsylvania. Nope, that's it. Right. Well, my wife says I have everything I need right here. So She's got a point. She does have a point. So, Well, that's interesting. I don't want to keep you here all night. We've covered a lot of ground here, and I think it's very interesting. I want you to share with the people that are listening something that's interesting about your life that you do a hobby that you have or something that most people don't know about interesting a hobby of mine well i'm an avid outdoorsman i love being outside i have a, a desk corporate job and i think you know whenever i've done my 40 hours and i've had it up to here with with the chaos i like to just go out in the wilderness um, i've got a 14 acre pollinator plot here and so you know, people would probably think I, something was wrong with me standing out in my wildflowers, staring at stuff. But I love to observe insects and I love wildlife. I do hunt, too. Um, my grandpa and his dad and his dad and his dad were always hunters. Hmm. So I, I do that. Um, they're probably a bit different than some modern folks that hunt. You know, we were raised to only take what you need, mm. be very respectful of the animal, almost a Native American approach to it, which mm. I think is pretty healthy. Um, it's a good balanced approach. And uh, I like backpacking, whitewater rafting. I've done a little bit of rock climbing, but uh, it's been a while. Okay, so, whitewater, whitewater rafting. Have you done those grade four rapids and stuff? I have. I've done that. Have you heard of the Gauley River? No. You haven't? Is it Virginia or West Virginia? You won't know. You haven't heard of it. It's one of the two, but it was completely insane. I went with a class whenever I was working on my bachelor's, and it was so foggy. We're in this raft, and it just sounds like all you hear is just the most insane water. And it's so foggy, you can't see. So whenever you get up and you're about to go Holy down, cow. I was like, we shouldn't be doing this. But it was too late. We were <laughs> we so, yeah. I would say that that's probably it. You know, I'm sure there's other odd things I'm into. I love plants and horticulture. I like grafting fruit trees, you know, on different. Oh man, I've done that too. Have you? Yes. Isn't it I awesome? I have the grafting kit with the wax and everything. Cause I wanted my apple tree to have four different heritage apples, yeah. like the sheep nose apple. Yeah. I've never had one. I've nope, never had one. Because I have a friend, he's retired from Penn State, professor, he passed away years ago, but even he, when he was young, got this apple orchard that was nothing but these heritage apples, so I wanted to get grafts from him and do that on my own property here. But let's sidetrack, you mentioned you have a pollinator plot, so are you planting uh, different species specific for your bees and pollinators, and if you are, what are you planting? I did. It was actually, whenever I enrolled it, it's actually out of the program now, so I'm just maintaining it. But it was, uh, let's see, uh, it was the USDA program. Oh, gosh. I keep thinking of Robin's acronym now, EPIQ, but it wasn't. EQIP, that's what it was. Sorry. Um, and it's a monarch and pollinator protection plot, so it's got several species of milkweed in it for the monarchs. But there's just tons of native uh, flowering varieties in there and the honeybees like it they get a lot of pollen off of it but i think the natives love it even more which is awesome because i think we need pollinator diversity you know sure. just not okay. just honeybees which do a phenomenal job keeping our food crops uh pollinated but man there's so much stuff honeybees don't touch that these natives right. just yeah. pollinate. and yeah. so uh, like i mentioned i spend a lot of time out there taking pictures i probably need to upgrade my camera equipment i'll probably have to talk to you about that Hey, we can talk. So, so that's great. And in, in closing, people should be reminded you are going to be a presenter in January. Yep. I will be at the North American Bee Expo presenting Cayman okay. Reynolds January 4th through 6th, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. If you Forever say so. 
<laughs> Whatever you say, that's when I'll go. Whatever Louisville, you Kentucky. <laughs> and uh, you're going to be there as well. So maybe we'll get to hang out. Yeah. There. Do you know what the topic is going to be that you're presenting? I'm not, I haven't exactly nailed it down. Although we just did so much UBO testing with Kara, I won't okay. be surprised if it's not a presentation on that. It's going to be hitting the market next year. And we had phenomenal scores. We had some low scoring stuff, which yep. Kara said was great. I didn't like to see it, but she said overall our scores were unprecedented. Um, so wow. that was very exciting to see. So yeah. I think I'll probably give an outline on that and show you what a low score and a high score looks like. And Okay. Uh, yeah, well, I'll I'll be catching up with you there for sure. So for those who are listening and watching right now, please look down in the video description and you'll get all the information about Corey's website and you can get in line for those queens next year. Good luck. I'm very fast at my order button. So <laughs> thank you so much, Corey. I appreciate having you on and it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. Thanks so much for the invite, Fred. I enjoyed it. Yep. And that wraps up another episode of Interviews with Experts. If you want to know more about Corey Stevens or look into Queen Availability next spring, you'll find useful links down in the video description. This and other interviews in the series are available as a podcast. Find out more by visiting my website, thewaytobe.org. I'm Frederick Dunn, and I want to thank you for watching and listening. I wish you all the best in beekeeping.